Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today you're listening to Percolating on Faith, where we talk about super, super, super smart things, and I end up feeling much smarter by the end of it. I don't know how you feel, gentle listener, and I don't know how Tony and Charmaine feel by the end of it, but I feel smarter. So you're here with Charmaine and Tony Schmella-Smith. Hi, Charmaine. Hi, Tony. Hi, Carla. How are you today? Good. It's so good to be with you. And today we'll be talking about protest theodicies. And um, if you haven't listened to any of our other stuff on theodicies, we've talked about Irenaean theodicies and uh, theodicy and Augustinian theodicy, but today... Well, before we jump into protest theodicy, could you tell us what a theodicy is? You bet. Sure, it's, sure. It's really important uh, because it's something we all do. We all struggle with theodicy. And mainly what a theodicy is, is it's, it's kind of a question. What is the relationship between God and the suffering and evil found in the world? That's kind of the primary question. And then we kind of have broken that down into like four prongs of the question. So if you can probably identify times when you've asked these questions, why are suffering and evil so present in human experience and in the world? Why did God create a world in which suffering or evil are even possible? And what does this say about the nature of God? And this is one that probably is most familiar. Why doesn't God protect us from evil and suffering? Or related to that, where is God when we are suffering? And that last one is the main question <laughs> when it comes to the theodicy we'll be looking at today, which is protest theodicy. Um, where is God when we are suffering? And so a theodicy really is a way of answering any one or all of these questions that I just mentioned. And I think it's pretty important to recognize that a theodicy, what, whatever kind it is, is a construct. It's a way that a theological thinker tries to answer any of those questions by bringing into it the raw materials of theology, experience, tradition, reason, scripture, and so on. How how, how do you bring all those together to come up with some sort of, <laughs> I wanted to say satisfying response, mm -hmm. but at least some sort of uh, uh, temporarily working response, because as a construct, none of these theodicies are, are perfect. They all have flaws in them. And in the end, when you're with suffering people or when you're suffering probably the last thing you really need is a construct. <laughs> Somebody telling you, well, if you just think this right. way, yeah. <laughs> what you, what you need is presence. You need, you need something, you know, you need to be loved and accepted, but there does come a time when, when you, we, I want to think about these things. And so these various theodicies give us ways to hold different uh, theological pieces together as we attempt to come up with some sort of way of saying, well, I can't answer all the questions, but at least here's a way to deal with it. And just a, a piece to, that helps us to kind of be realistic is that typically we don't have a single theodicy. Quite often we'll have, we'll have picked pieces of different theodicies that work with 
work with quotations around it in this situation or as we're trying to struggle through um, what what has happened or where is God in it? So, oh, that's why I've actually really, um, really enjoyed this because I feel like in some ways when you're going through something rough and like, you're trying to figure it out, you know, like all of these things just come to you or you're trying to figure things out, but this kind of like puts it in a little bit of a, a silo place so that you can like be like, okay, I might be acting out of this one right now, or I might be acting out of this one right now. And that maybe I'm not all that weird for (laughs) acting the way I do in those kinds of situations. I, this has been really helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really one of the (laughs) roles of a theodicy is to give us a, a place in which to stand in the midst of whatever the struggle is or the uncertainty or the fear or the injustice or the natural disaster. You know, it, it gives us a place to, to stand for a while and know that other people have been there too. And that, you know, our questions, our uncertainties, or even our certainties, um, are not, um, that they are not necessary. Uh, You know, that the question isn't just a question. It leads us somewhere. Our our certainty and our uncertainty are leading us somewhere. And and we don't have to just be, you know, in this quagmire of of why, you know, just stuck there. So uh, in some ways, it's the, the big question with the theodicy is the why you know? Yeah. And so this, this today, the, the one that's called a protest theodicy is where, what we're going to focus on. And actually where we're going to start is with some language of scripture that is language of protest. And so we'll, we'll see where we go from there. Okay. I'm going to start with uh, Psalm 22 and something, uh, something that's quite common in Psalms is that, and particularly Psalms of lament is that there will be this crying out to God about injustice. And then quite often in the Psalms, there'll be some kind of resolution by the end of the Psalm where people are back to remembering, Oh, well, God did come through in the past and that kind of thing. Um, But in a protest, the Odyssey, there isn't the resolution at the end. And so I'm just going to give you some of the parts of these Psalms, uh, Psalm 22, that is what a a protest the Odyssey is about the complaining to God (laughs) about what, what is. So I'm just going to, the first pass part of this passage, you'll recognize from other parts of scripture from the new Testament as well. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from helping me? from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. And so here's one of those places in this, this Psalm where it does the, a little bit of a resolution. You know, it's like, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were saved. In you, they trusted and we're not put to shame. So, and then it goes back and forth, but some other parts of this one. um... Yeah, so this is still in Psalm 22. Uh, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
for dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled. I could count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So these are all these, you know, very real complaints to God about the situation in which the author finds themselves. And then Job is another really great book to get some of this protest to God um, about the situation as it is. And so I'm going to, uh, so Tony, you want to read the beginning part? Sure. Uh, this is Job, Job 7. seven. Uh, do not human beings have a hard service on earth and are not their days like the days of a laborer? like a slave who longs for the shadow and like laborers who look for their wages. So I'm allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long and I'm full of tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens then breaks out again. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Yeah, <laughs> this is hard stuff. And I'm just going to skip over to nine, uh, Job nine. And in all of these, this is where, where Job is pleading his innocence, where while his friends say, oh, there's all this bad stuff that happened to you. You, you probably deserve it. You probably did something wrong. And he's, he's saying, no, no, this is unfair. This, this isn't right at all. Uh, so this is nine. Um, uh, 17 through 19. For he crushes me with a tempest, meaning God, and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath and fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, he is the strong one. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him or who can subpoena him? Um, um, I am blameless. Uh, let's see, I'm glad I, I loathe my life. Um, it is all one. Therefore, I say he, he destroys both the, the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers his eyes uh, of its, he covers the eyes of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? So it's like God is not standing for what is just. And my situation is a, is a sign of that. Yeah, so, so this, this is like now turning one's anger, one's situation towards the one who is, is imagined as the source of it, i.e. God, right? God, you, th this, this is on you, God, right? Is, right. Job, is what Job is saying in all this. And, and, and I, can't, I can't escape you, but this is on you and you're not doing anything for me. And this, this latter, this next one points to another part of protest the Odyssey, which is we can't even get an answer from God. We, we, there's nobody to hold God accountable for what God isn't doing. So um, for God is not immortal as I am that I might answer him and that we might come to trial together. There is no umpire between us who might lay his hand on both of us. If he would take his rod away from me and not let dread of him terrify me, then I would speak without fear of him, for I know I am not what I am thought to be. So you're getting this sense of this terrible inner turmoil, 
and this sense that where is God and how could this be is how could this even happen and, and the, the sense there in that last part is that God you're 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 so you're so horrible to me that what we really need here is a, is a referee, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. You have somebody to decide to between us, yeah, and, and, and to and bring justice for what you're doing or what you're not keeping from happening to me. So, so there's all of that, and then, um, and it, but we're very familiar with some of one of these passages that's used in the New Testament, Jesus' own words at his death, which is, "My God, my God." Why have you forsaken me? And, and I think that brings this very much home um, to all of us. But one of the things about a, a protest theodicy is that it comes primarily from Judaism, modern, recent Judaism. Right. And so this, this type of theodicy is really attributed to post-Holocaust Jewish thinkers, though quite a number of Christian thinkers have pick, picked it up too. But uh, thinkers like Elie Wiesel, uh, we're going to share some of his book, Night, here in a minute. Richard Rubenstein. Um, uh, oh, there's, there's several others. Um, Cohen, whose book, uh, The Tremendum, is really an important book on this topic. Um, that, so there's a number of these thick, uh, Jewish figures after the Holocaust who have said, I'm still a Jew. I still think there's a God, but... How do I reconcile that with what just happened to us in the 20th century? Where was this God that we have tried to love and serve and be faithful to? Where, where, where did this God go? And why is this God so silent in all this? So, so protest theodicy then arises out of that experience. Um, Arthur Cohen's book called The Tremendum, the, that, that, that horrible thing, the tremendous thing that happened, the thing that makes us shake uh, is, uh, that's, that's a, a, a title worth worth looking at, but the idea that the Holocaust is this thing that shakes everything loose, including our faith that God is actually good or just. So that's that's where protest theodicy is trying to head. So it will make us uncomfortable, but it will probably also resonate with some of our own experience. Um, you know, at at this point, I I think about the Uvalde shootings. And, you know, that's a question that comes up for many who, who were there, who've been impacted by it, who've lost loved ones. Where, where is God in the killing of innocent children? Um, and why, why, why was it allowed? So it's, it's very relevant to our, our present realities. Um, uh if you want to get into the feeling of this, I can't think of a better place to go than Elie Wiesel's memoir, Night. As a young teenage boy, he and his family are, they live in Hungary as the Nazis are, you know, the, the Nazi evil is descending on Europe. And they are carted away to Auschwitz. And then he's eventually, he and his father eventually moved to Buchenwald. But um, he, his book Night was a was a kind of a memoir of what happened. He survived, right? Uh, none of his family did, but he survived. And so, in his book Night, uh, there's a couple of scenes worth going over right now. I think that will help get help us understand that protest theodicy is protest towards God, right? Uh, it's not only protest about the evil happening to us, but it's protest towards God uh, that this could happen at all. So, there's this scene in which 
uh, a few, a few. Now we're in a concentration camp, and a, a few, a few of the inmates have have been discovered to have smuggled some weapons. And among these inmates is uh, a small boy. So the and the, the Nazis are going to going to hang them. And so um, this little scene says the the three condemned prisoners together stepped onto the uh, onto the chairs. In unison, the nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men, but the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. So the whole camp has to watch this, right? So at the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Caps off, screamed the head of camp. His voice quivered as, as for the rest of us, we were weeping. Cover your heads. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out swollen and bluish, but the third rope was still moving. The child too light was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death writhing before our eyes and we were forced to look at him at close range he was still alive when i passed him his tongue was still red his eyes not yet extinguished behind me i heard the same man asking for god's sake where is god and from within me i heard a voice answer where he is this is where hanging here from this gallows that night the soup tasted of corpses that that scene is just so uh overwhelmingly powerful it's probably for many readers of this book one of the most memorable scenes from from night but yeah it's important to understand that Elie Wiesel was training to become a rabbi training in Jewish mysticism as a little kid as an early teenager he is totally devoted to his faith and to God and to following the Torah and to to being the the best and most spiritual Jew he can possibly be. And so uh, this is this is this is the, the his his faith is dying right in front of us in, on this page, or at least it's it's changing. It's changing. it's changing in a very powerful way. And then just a few pages over, there's another scene that takes place at uh, Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. And uh, uh, so and the, maybe yeah, just ahead, a turn. little bit more background mm -hmm. is, you know, this is he's a, a teenager and already he's seen thousands of deaths of people all around him um, for for no good reason other than they are uh, Jewish or in the way of the Nazis in some way. So in this this next scene, then it's it's the eve of Jewish New Year in the fall, Rosh Hashanah, and um, Wiesel says that night was falling rapidly. All, all, all the all the Jews in this camp have been gathered into like a, a square that's in the middle of the camp. And uh, night was falling rapidly and more and more prisoners kept coming from every block, suddenly able to overcome time and space to will both into submission. What are you, my God? I thought angrily. How do you compare to the stricken mass gathered to, to affirm to you their faith, their anger, their defiance? What does your grandeur mean, master of the universe, in the face of all this cowardice, this decay, and this misery? Why do you go on troubling these poor people's wounded minds, their ailing bodies? 
And so then they they go then the, a leader goes into the the New Year liturgy. Blessed be the Almighty, the voice of the officiating inmate had just become audible. At first, I thought it was the wind. Blessed be God's name. Thousands of lips repeated the benediction, bent over like trees in a storm. Blessed be God's name. Why? But why would I bless him? Every fiber in me rebelled because he caused thousands of children to burn in his mass graves, because he kept six crematoria working day and night, including Sabbath and the holy days. Because in his great might, he had created Auschwitz, Birkenau, Buna, and so many other factories of death. How would I say to him, blessed be thou almighty master of the universe, who chose us among all nations to be tortured day and night, to watch as our fathers, our mothers, our brothers end up in the furnaces. Praise be thy holy name for having chosen us to be slaughtered on thine altar. So that's a a sample of what's going on in in young Ailey as he's taking part of this this important Jewish ritual, but in the midst of a death camp. And so uh, how can we even talk about God here? God, where, what do we mean by God? So that's the kind of uh, experience then that is behind a protest theodicy. Um, and all of, all of them that I know of kind of reflect the same sort of, uh, God, you're, God, you're there, but man, are you silent uh, and unhelpful? Yeah. And what shall we make of that? Um, So that, so we'll go on now to look at what is some of the content and meaning of a protest theodicy. And um, as we've noted before in other times when we've dug in deeply to theological matters, we, we often look to Migliori in his book, uh, faith seeking understanding. And he has a, a brief description of protest theodicy that wraps a whole lot of things up. And so we just want to, to draw on that because it's, he says it so well. And so here we're just, you know, reading from pages 132 and 133 from, from Migliori, uh, where he's talking about protest theodicy. Um, he basically says, this is the name given by John Roth to his own position, which has its, as its basis and inspiration in the witness and reflection of the Holocaust survivor and author, Elie Wiesel. Jewish theologians, Richard Rubinstein and Arthur Cohen may also be considered representatives of a protest theodicy. Assuming with the Bible, a very strong view of the sovereignty of God, the tendency of this theodicy is to question the total goodness of God. There is simply too much tragedy, injustice and murder in history. We must be honest to our experience and to God and thus quarrel with the all too familiar refrain that God is love. That's part of what he says then. And then he immediately goes on. Um, So this is a theodicy with no easy answers, but with the honesty to raise what earlier believers would have considered blasphemous questions. And with the determination to be faithful to God, even when it appears that God has ceased to be faithful. So that's, uh, that's Migliori, uh, he, Migliori respects this theodicy. I mean, it's not his per se, but he respects it uh, and says, how, in some ways, you just can't argue with this, uh, consider, considering its source. Yeah, it, in a way, it's, it's being theologically honest about the realities that we see and not trying to find l- lovely little Band-Aid answers that will make us feel good, but it's facing it on head on, heart on um, to the, the the terrors, the things in in reality and world. 
And how flippant does it sound to say, well, don't forget God is love when you're facing all of these terrors and horrible things. And like, that's, that feels that, that feels like nobody will ever understand what you're going through. It feels like you're just alone in the world. It makes it way worse rather than better. And when you are faced by hate that can't be turned away, that, mm-hmm. yeah. How, how do you say, oh, well, God is love or it's going to be all right. And it, and you know, it isn't, mm-hmm. it hasn't been, and it won't be. So what, where do you go? What do you do with that? And what do you do with, and this, I think is Ailey Vissel's situation. What do you do with these two realities? On the one hand, you can't shake that there is something called God. On the other hand, you can't get rid of the image of Nazis machine gunning babies. How do you how do you hold those images in yourself, uh, th- those images and, and whatever main- is left of that faith? You how do you hold that together and maintain sanity in the midst? Yeah. So you protest, right? So so you use the voice of Job, the voice of the psalmists who lament. Um, uh, you 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 lament without uh, adding little hopeful sections in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't do the resolution. You let um, you let the rawness, the uneasiness stand. So we can, you know, we'll just walk through some other themes of, of protest theodicy. Mm-hmm. Basically we've covered a few already that, that protest theodicy does not typically say there's no God, but, but it questions, but whether God is just or fair or good uh, or even able to act. And so uh, God for protest theodicy is, is, like this silent partner who's always just watching on, but never does anything. Right. And so uh, that's, uh, that's a really difficult part of it. Um, And what it's um, challenging is this, um, this sense that some would have that, um, that divine goodness will always show up and somehow magically make things okay. Um, And it's acknowledging that that doesn't happen. So it's, it's wanting to put that out there and then protest the odyssey protests against God. It is, it's like a prayer protesting the one you're praying to. Um, The protest is directed to God about God's inaction, God's silence or God's indifference or, or that sense of God being uh, distance, especially in the face of justice, injustice and suffering. And it all pro- also protests those pat religious answers that ignore the reality of God's inactivity in the midst of this harmful, harming, unjust world. Now, you're not going to get away with saying, well, everything happens for a reason to any of these theologians. Mm. They're, they're, going, they're going to pillory that immediately based on their experience and show how how vile that statement actually is, right? So one of the things about this theodicy is that it it insists that evil is real and it continues, it persists in the world. We can't deny that. We can't deny that the reality of evil Um, and that something like the the human evil that created the Holocaust, uh, it just cannot be dismissed or forgotten. You can't sweep it under the rug. Uh, These theologians, most of whom, I don't, a lot of them are probably no longer alive. And certainly Vissel isn't, and I think Rubenstein isn't, but, but uh, they, would be, they would be utterly 
and vo vocally mortified with the idea that we're somehow going to control textbooks in schools so that kids don't have to read about, about uh, race-based uh, slaughter like, like the Shoah or racism in America. So you, one of the things that they're gonna, as part of the protest is making sure that you insist that you keep rubbing people's little, 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 little comfy people, noses in, in, the, in the actual evil of the world. Yeah, making people recognize this is real. It's not a figment of my imagination. Evil is real. And then implied and really more explicit that we must face it. We are called to do something about it. And so in, in this theodicy, human beings must rely on their own resources. It's crucial that we act in ways, as uh, Richard Rubenstein would say, um, that we make the most of our limited existence. You know, whether our lives are long or short, we have this obligation to make the world a better place because that's how it will happen. And so this means working for, for social and personal good and seeking justice now, here, not in some, something far off. You know, the best that we can, um, and especially that we help each other cl clearly see injustice, name it, challenge it, do something about it. Our, our ideal of God and our knowledge of God in this theodicy help us imagine what justice is, and then it gives us eyes to recognize injustice. So it's this sense of who God is teaches us what justice is. Even when we, even when we're shouting at God for for not bringing that justice into the places where we want it, um, the sense that idea of who God is teaches us what justice is, so we can recognize and act against injustice. So this this theodicy, um, going back to Meliori here, it it forbids us, especially it forbids religious people from hiding behind uh, cliches, religious cliches or images of God as one who's going to, God's going to come and bail it out and fix everything. Um, and, you know, as we, as the Meliori reading, it, 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 as Meliori says, the, the all too familiar refrain that God is love, well, this theodicy says, no, you can't, you just can't go around saying that because there's so much lovelessness in the world. It's really hard to and 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 love always acts for the well-being of others. So what what kind of love is this that God is? If God if God does not help millions of innocent victims in in a, uh, a death camp, so I think that's an important part of this is that um, we're not we're not going to religify <laughs> suffering and evil. Uh, we're not going to not not hide behind um, you know pretty little religious phrases that, that keep us from actually facing the reality of the stuff that we're complicit in too, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. that's really important here. It's part of the systems that, that we benefit from or in uh, undergird in some ways. And then in the, in the spirit of the ancient Psalms of lament and of Job's searing questions about God, um, this approach, this theodicy is willing to put God on trial. The only way to be faithful to God or one's concept of God is to call God out for inactivity or indifference. It's, it's like an obligation. Um, 
And the, the point is to unequivocally name injustice for what it is, to strengthen our sensitivity to it and our resolve to make the world more just. An interesting sidelight here would be, um, you know, during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, one of the obstacles civil rights leaders had was the sense among lots of Christians that, well, we just have to wait on God to do this and God will fix this in God's good time. And it's like, no, uh, the good time is now. Right. And if we don't, if we don't act on the basis of what we know about God's love and care for all creation right now, then the, the then the injustice will, will persist and persist and persist. And so uh, you, you've got to name it and call it out and work, work on it right now. So. One of the things that this theodicy challenges on every front is the idea that if you just are religious, if you just do the right things, then you're promised an easy life um, and success. And you know, if you just hold the right set of ideas, then God is obligated to make your life, you know, just coast right along in through life. But as Meliore puts it, there is no, there is no, there are no easy answers uh, in this theodicy. But it does, it overturns that idea that, you know, if, if you do wrong, you get bad, you know, if there's consequences, if you, if you're not religious enough. Um, and so it, 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 but in spite of the bad that has come to people, it refuses to give up on a belief in or being faithful to God, who by some of these thinkers is imagined as the infinite source of all being. So they believe in God. They have this deeply rooted sense of being, uh, that there is a God. And so for them, worship and fully partaking in religious life is appropriate and it's needful, but with no guarantees that doing that um, will make, give you an easy life. It's, it's, a, it's this stark honesty about why we believe in God, not, not so we get something back, that belief in God and acknowledging that is, in its, is its own thing, um, and that we need to separate our ideas mm -hmm. that somehow our, our worship is, will get us something. So there's this very, there's starkness about it. So then one, one other point to make, and then, then we'll pause and see, Carl, if you have any questions or observations before we go on to, well, how do you preach a, a protest theodicy and how do you pray a protest theodicy? But one other point is that um, protest theodicy refuses to give up on the idea that humanity should seek to create a more just world. That's kind of embedded in it. And I think that's part of its Jewish and prophetic heritage. Uh, but there's no there's no predestined glorious future that God will provide. It's not like, all right, whatever happens, it's all going to be good. You know, there's there's a rainbow coming. It's not none of that, right? It's up to us, really, um, and not some kind of divine supernatural rescue in the future. So I, I think one of the relevant things about this um, in our current time is that I have the feeling, and I've I've sort of heard this, but I have the feeling that a lot of Christians don't take climate change seriously because they, at some level, they think that God's going to just come magically and fix it for us. That, 
Jesus is going to come and make the, make the climate all better. And it's like, um, you're not reading the gospels very closely, are you? And, <laughs> and uh, you're not paying attention to the whole narrative of the Bible. Um, and you really ought to listen to these thinkers too, uh, on that. So if, you know, the, the term theodicy, going back to the German philosopher Leibniz from its two roots, uh, uh, God and justification, how to justify faith in God in spite of evil. A protest theodicy would say, God is, but I'm not sure we can justify God in the face of evil. But what we can justify is our own, our own meager little existence if we work to create a future where there's no more Auschwitzes. Uh, and 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 no more uh, you know forced separation of children from parents or you 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 name the atrocity as long as we work working for a future that limits that is the only justification there there really is so that's I think yeah. part of this uh, a valid part of this theodicy yeah and I think it's something to hang on to the idea that without our effort there won't be a better future and I think that undergirds a lot of this particular theodicy. So it does have a, a, a high view of what human beings can do if they choose it. Um, so the, the question is, can we choose it? <laughs> so we'll it pause. Sounds like, oh, it sounds like the belief in God is like central to this. Is that true? Like the belief in God is absolutely central. Like you always still believe in God. Yep. But Even God though- is a partner you are, you're, you're going to argue with and you're, you're, you're going to put God in, in the dock and, <laughs> and you're going to be the, the prosecuting attorney here. <laughs> and actually one of the things that this theodicy constantly is doing is saying maybe some of our ideas of who God is or what we expect God to do for us are wrong. God is real. God is the source of all being but maybe some of our expectations of who God is have, have messed up our, our perception of what life is about. Because well, is it about like rethinking who God is uh, after every single thing and deciding again, who God is. And, and is that a personal thing? Is that a community thing? How do people re decide who God is? Well, yes and yes. I think it's, yeah. it's the important part of this because uh, you know Jewish Jewish theology in all of its forms is very communal. So, so it, it would be yes personal, yes communal. Um, so. And and you know in Judaism, this was the Holocaust was not the first time that this whole questioning has happened and needed to be um, processed as a as a people. But you know. He, Elie Wiesel starts with his own experience, his own personal, un, the undoing of his ideas of God. And yet at this deep place in himself, knowing there is a God, but the, the, the things that he had learned or been taught or taken in, they were not sufficient to understand where God is or how God is at work in the world. It's like for these thinkers, uh, best analogy I can come up with is, Carla, have you ever have you ever got a thistle or a picker in your in a finger or a toe or your foot? Like you were walking barefoot out out in the farm field and you picked up a thistle and you can't find it. It's in there. It just keeps picking and picking and picking away. You know what I'm talking about? 
<laughs> you know, I'm from Kansas. The answer is, right. duh. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Easy to find these in Kansas. And so it's like, God is like that. God, you would think that some of these theologians would say, the idea of God is now passe. It's stupid. It, it no longer holds water. They don't do, they don't go there. God, God remains this sort of picker in your foot. Uh, always there, always saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And you're saying, I really like to get you out, but I can't. And so it, uh, the, the, the persistence of the existence of God is, is in this theodicy. And yet, uh, we're not going to be dishonest about the reality of the horrible evil we have had to face with you just being stuck in my foot and not helping me. <laughs> well, I think that's actually the the second part I wanted to re-mention that you've talked about is that, you know, there are people in the United States who want to take uncomfortable parts of history out of history books because we don't want to make any child feel uncomfortable. And in my mind, I'm like, that's absolutely ridiculous, but you have given a definition as to why that's ridiculous because, um, you know, like we're not creating thinkers and doers and beers. When we do that kind of stuff, we're creating people who don't even have a choice. And so I think that this is a super important, um, argument for keeping those quote unquote, uncomfortable places in our history, in our history books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we don't know it, we can't act in a more just way. We will continue to perpetuate these unjust systems and these things that kill people because of the color of their skin or their gender or whatever. And, you know, it's, this is, this is a long, honest view of reality and finding what our part is and questioning where God is in it. And I think the two really are are hand in hand. Um, and this, one of the conclusions mm -hmm. is we can't look to God to fix the problems that we are making. And if we don't know that we're making problems for each other, there's no fixing them. As mm -hmm. you say, there's, you know, people won't even know, you know, how, you know, it's, it's for many people knowing what happened in, uh, in Tulsa, the, the wiping out of the successful black neighborhood in Tulsa. In the 1920s. We didn't even know about that until, you know, sometime in the last five years. And it's like, oh my goodness, why didn't we know? And there, there was no reparations. There still has been no reparations for the people who were driven out or killed mm -hmm. in that mob action. So mm -hmm. it, if we don't know that, we, we're not even aware of where it all, it still is in a society and where we need to face it and, mm -hmm. and expose it and um, call it what it is. And, you know, uh, the, the Hebrew prophets were the ones who, who in, the, in the whole Bible uh, saw, th saw through the way religion can become a form of self-deception, mm -hmm. right? Re religious self-deception is the worst because the resources that the religion could offer for mending and, and healing and doing things better are obscured by the very act of lying about the reality of things. I mean, you know, we're, we're recording this podcast in the United States, a country with, with a heck of a lot of churches. How can a country with so many Christian churches be so violent and so racist 
and so open to living in self-deception about the re- about a whole bunch of realities. I mean, obviously, uh, in, from the perspective of protest theodicy, we're we're afraid of truth, right? We're we're so afraid of truth that we would prefer mythologies we create that make us feel comfortable that to actually having Doing to something fa- about right facing up to the fact we have got to make some serious changes. So so uh, protest theodicy. I think, in my view, it has some of the genes of the ancient Hebrew prophets speaking through it. And it's, it's, you know, none of these, none of these theodicies is the, the be all and end all, but there are things to learn from each of them. And this, this one has some things, especially to, to teach us today. In some ways, its conclusion is that God's inaction, not fixing this, not saving people, is what makes us look honestly at what is and what is the legacy of human hatred mm-hmm. and distrust yeah. and and evil and greed and all of those things i think you know from another angle one might say is god inactive or is god actively letting us be what we want to be hmm. if god is actively letting us be what we want to be then uh we ought to pay attention to what we are, what we are, <laughs> what we're doing right. to each other. Now that sounds like what a good parent would do, right? <laughs> like, I guess you have lessons to learn. And if you want to dive headfirst off of the couch, I guess you're going to learn a lesson. No, I'm just kidding. But you know, like that sounds like what a parent would do. It's like, you need to learn these lessons and I'm not going to always jump in and save you every single time. I'm not going to do it. So that, that sounds more likely to me. Mm-hmm. And, and being what you want to be will show up who you really are. Right? So that's oh a man, <laughs> that's actually hard in the parent position too, though, too, isn't it? I wonder if God, I wonder if God has a hard time with that, or if God's just fine with letting us do really silly things. <laughs> well, so what we can go on now to, we, we want to have these these practical pieces in each of these. So I'll speak for a few minutes on how to preach a protest theodicy, and Charmaine will then lead us in how to pray a protest theodicy. So. And as you, you will hear me say each time, we don't actually preach a theodicy, <laughs> right? The, the message of the church is not a theodicy or a theology. The message is the, the, good, the good news of Christ. And so uh, we don't preach a theodicy per se, uh, especially because you have people sitting there right in front of you on Sunday morning or on Zoom, however you're doing it, who, are, who could be dealing with immense immense uh, loss and pain and absolute horror in their lives. And so the idea that somebody, you know, I'm going to give you a, a recipe for fixing this is actually a horrible idea. Um, so, but on the other hand, we don't want to shy away from the questions of evil and suffering that are real and, and face. And so one way to, to, to preach a protest theodicy or to let it inform preaching is don't shy away from the psalms of lament and even from those psalms that curse enemies when, when the lectionary brings them up. Uh, the, the only problem I could think of with the lectionary is that it gives you a multitude of choices and you start looking at the text for a given Sunday. And if you find yourself always gravitating to the happy texts, <laughs> then protest the Odyssey has something to, to help you uh, grow with. And so... Um, if the, lectionary, if the lectionary leads us to difficult psalms of lament or what are called the imprecatory psalms, the psalms in which enemies are called out and cursed, that's, that's worth 
that's worth uh, working through and trying to, to deal with. Um, don't shy away from preaching on Good Friday if you're asked to preach on Good Friday, uh, especially when the text is the, what's called the cry of dereliction that Charmaine quoted earlier, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Good, Good Friday is the place where Christian theology, where the gospel, where the story of Jesus can engage very deeply in the kinds of questions and struggles that a protest theodicy is dealing with. Um, don't promise happy endings in <laughs> sermons, right? It's all going to be better. We're going to tie it all up in a nice bow, and then, then we're going to go eat that pork roast that's been cooking <laughs> or whatever it is, right? So no, uh, it's okay for the sermon not to have a happy ending, but to have a challenging ending or an unresolved ending. Um, that would be in alignment with the protest theodicy. And then take up seriously and reflect in our sermons on the brutality of history, the Holocaust or the Shoah, uh, the killing fields, racism and white supremacy, sexism and misogyny. Um, you know, we want to bring the full range of human misery unapologetically into conversation with the good news. We're, the good news is not meant to be uh, an elixir that somehow makes you not deal with the bad news of human experience. Rather, the good news wants to come into conversation with that and offer us a different way to live and be. And then, uh, of course, avoid the pie in the sky. They're in a better place. There must be a reason. All that stuff. This is the, these, this is the theological equivalent of nitrous oxide at the, at the dentist's office. This is the gas that puts you out. Uh, or that makes you just feel okay no makes, matter yeah. what makes you feel, I, I'm, I'm all, I'm so happy. I'm so happy I was at church today. No, uh, the, the sermon, the roots of the sermon in our churches is the prophetic announcement in the Hebrew Bible. And those were not, those were not happy speeches. <laughs> and I'm not talking about going in and preaching a downer. I'm just saying there are things, the things to be aware of uh, our tendency always to want to coat and cover and shield and not deal with the realities of life. So that's some things, some things to keep in mind if trying to use the resources of, of a protest theodicy in preaching. Mm -hmm. And I think Carlos, something you just, you were saying earlier about people um, struggling with these horrible things in their lives and then going to church and everybody's pretending that that never happened, that's not real. And that somehow if you're struggling with it, there's something wrong with your faith. Um, to hear the protest part, you know, we went to a, um, a funeral of a young woman who, who died un, without any, nobody knew, nobody knows why that happened. And um, she died in her sleep. And, and the preacher was angry at God. And it was at first very uncomfortable. And then it was like, oh my gosh, of course, this, this is a part of how we bring God into this conversation is to say, God, where were you? How could you let this happen? Um, it was very, and, and I, I assume others too, but for me, I took that with me and let this not be, oh, something that just made everybody feel good who came to this memorial service, but some, it's like God is with us in those hard questions, in those places where the pain won't heal. 
-hmm. And people need to know that, that there's not something wrong with them because they can't figure out where God is in the midst of something awful. And I just think it's so important that there's that kind of honesty. And, you know, just further reflection on that. Uh, I have no idea what Jesus' resurrection body is like, but one thing I know about it, it still has the scars on it. And so uh, that belongs with God for eternity. And so God, the God that we worship and serve is not a God who is unscarred or immune to our scars. So uh, our last piece here is how to pray um, a protest theodicy, or I would say how to let protest theodicy help us pray more honestly. And so my first um, note would be, don't apologize to God for our sense of what is truly just. So we embrace and articulate what is just. And in this prayer, we're reminding God and ourselves of what is good so that it can be embraced, but also what is evil so that it can be rejected. And I just want to note here that there is a difference between what is truly just and what is simply an inconvenience or annoyance to us, <laughs> in which case our prayer would just be whining rather than upholding justice. But the, for this one, don't apologize to God for our sense of what is truly just and let that guide our prayer. And then also let the rawness of the situation come through in our prayer. Don't try to code it with religious fluff. So here's a couple of examples that kind of get at those two things. God, I'm heartbroken. I can't find you in my pain and nothing makes sense. How could this happen when I try so hard to do what's good and right? And then another example, God, this injustice is taking lives every day. How can you let it go on? Where are you? Will you not help us as we try to make the world safer for the vulnerable? Another piece of a protest theodicy is that we must be hypervigilant about not blaming the victim in the midst of obvious injustice. This is a, another one of those things that we do in religious circles, but also in culture in general of well, you know, that happened to them because, you know, they weren't very attentive or uh, how they looked or what they were wearing or where they were. And we, we have this tendency to blame the victim. And so with pro, but with protest, the odyssey, there's no room for that. So a, a, an example might be God, why has this happened? This person did nothing wrong. This action dehumanizes them and breaks them. Where are you? What can I even say to them about where you are? And then another point here is to just say, you know, you're in our thoughts and prayers, which is, you know, it's a good, good and fine term. And sometimes it's very sincere, but to just say that in a protest, the odyssey is meaningless unless it's accompanied by, by 
concrete action that brings healing or justice or hope. So a prayer possibility there. God, I cannot see you in this situation. And I'm not sure what I could even ask of you. But I feel the unfairness, the injustice and the evil that it creates. God, help me bring light here, hope here, and to have the courage to stand with and for this person and for justice. And then the last uh, little note, often in times of great injustice or in feelings of abandonment by God, we don't have words. We don't know what to say. And we're maybe afraid that if we pray from our anger or our hurt or abandonment, that we'll do something wrong. And so sometimes we're afraid to pray from those places. But I would suggest if you don't have words for praying from the injustice and the abandonment, to go to the Psalms of lament. We looked at Psalm 22 earlier, or to Job's defense of his innocence, or to the, lament, the lament section that's in Community of Christ Sings. And there's actually a segment, hymns 198 to 205 are laments. And there's some things there that are so much like what we've just been talking about. This is in hymn 204, The Storm Comes to Honduras, uh, to Nicaraguan towns. El Salvador felt anguish as rains came crashing down. O God of wind and water, who made the sea and sky? Amid such great destruction, we ask a mournful, why? This gets at the heart of it. Another of these hymns of lament is Senzenzi Na, which is uh, hymn number 200. And it's two phrases repeated. And this, this helped just for some context. This was an apartheid marching protest song in South Africa. Um, challenging apartheid, this kind of racism there. And, and, the, and the phrases there are, what have we done? What is our sin? Repeated over and over. And it, it captures too, this honest facing of injustice that you will find in a protest theodicy. Uh, wow. Um, I'm so glad you brought up Senze Nina. Oh, well, that's how I, yeah. Um, because oh, you're probably saying it proper. And I, well, I don't know, because I, I remember it was on the power of one soundtrack and I loved the book, the power of one, uh, about PK and he was, you know, he was living in South Africa and they, and I remember I was a child and I had the soundtrack and I was listening to this song and I just remember crying through it. And my mom's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even know what's wrong, but it was like so moving. I remember we don't sing it in our hymnal the same way they sing it, which makes me really sad, but because I can always hear that soundtrack. Um, but thank you so much for bringing that up and for talking about the songs of lament we have in our hymnal. Um, and I, I really appreciate hearing the prayers. I do want to say, Charmaine, I feel actually personally attacked by the whining prayer comment. <laughs> As I was writing that down, I just, I thought about myself and it's like, oh, there's times when it's like, oh, you know, drama queen. Oh, it's so unjust. And then it's like, oh no, it's just inconvenient or annoying. Um, and, and in a, a culture of privilege, 
Yeah. Sometimes we do not recognize the difference. So I did have to put that in there that um, when it's truly about injustice. I think that's very wise of you. <laughs> because <laughs> Why did I get that parking spot, God? What is going on today? <laughs> One of those. That's not helpful. That's no, not for testiology. Definitely a whiny prayer. Yeah, definitely a whiny prayer. Um, well, I'm really grateful for this because when we talked that we were going to do um, a podcast on protest theodicy, I was like, I was thinking, you know, the song war, what is it good for? I thought it was that kind of a protest, <laughs> which it kind of is. It kind of is. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I've learned a lot. Thanks for that. And I really, I really appreciate that it comes like, it's more, it's a modern theodicy and not a modern theodicy all at the same time. Right. Cause it's the Jewish, it's part of the Jewish um, religion, but like it came out, it feels like after world war two, which is it's really articulated really yeah. That's a better way to put it. Half half century. Yep. Interesting. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Was there anything else you wanted to say before we um, stop? Um, The the God, the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God who can be argued with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's important to, it's, it's not, it's not blasphemy. It's not unfaith. It's not being unrighteous to push back on God or one's conceptions of God or what one's tradition has said about God and say, Hey, this doesn't square. This is not squaring with the reality I'm experiencing right now. Um, because if I can jump ahead to medieval Christianity, God is truth itself. And so truth itself is never going to be afraid of hearing our truth. I like that. I like that too. The medieval Christian uh, Christianity is not so, not so dumb after all. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't say that when you had us for uh, history of Christian thought one, Carla. That would have been five points from Gryffindor right there, I think. So. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm not going to say I censored myself a lot in your class, but maybe I censored myself a little bit in your class. <laughs> well, I'm really appreciative of this today. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And uh, yeah, Charmaine, Tony, you're pretty awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 